Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Joining us today for a look at what's next for sustainable investing is Fidelity Sustainable World ETF Portfolio Manager Anna Lester and Institutional Portfolio Manager Mike Hagopian. Governments around the world are taking swift action to battle climate change by advancing the transition to the clean economy. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, alongside German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, met recently and discussed several green initiatives, including a hydrogen alliance. South of the border, a new climate bill put in motion by President Biden would see about $375 billion over 10 years to encourage industry and consumers to shift from carbon emitting to cleaner forms of energy. Anna and Mike join host Pamela Ritchie to unpack what all of this means for companies and how they operate and report. Also, what will be different in the way society approaches investing. Also today, Mike explains the strategy behind Fidelity Sustainable World ETF, which is a global equity fund focusing on best-in-class ESG companies. Anna details which companies are in the portfolio, companies that are strong financially and are strong from an ESG scoring perspective. This podcast was recorded on August 24th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Great to see you both again, Anna and Mike, how are you? Good, good, it's a pleasure to be here. Likewise, yeah. Thank you, Pamela. Great, great to see you. It's great to see you both as well. It's It's been a couple of months since we spoke, so I am actually going to ask you to begin. First of all, I'll ask everyone joining us here, send questions in for Anna and for Mike throughout the next half hour. But I will ask you, Anna and Mike, to take us through a little bit the one, two, threes of the fund itself again, just so that we get more familiarized with the ETF and sort of how it works. Mike, can I begin with you to sort of lay the foundation for us there? Sure, yeah, the Fidelity Sustainable World ETF, that's a, a fund we launched in the middle of 2019. And the goal of that fund is to provide investors um, a global equity exposure by building a portfolio of, of best-in-class ESG companies. So we're supporting an investor's preferences to be greater aligned to ESG and also being sensitive to their concern about how they're generating investment returns. So in this ETF, for example, an investor can take comfort in knowing they're they're not going to be profiting from the sale of controversial weapons, for example, or their energy investments are going to be aligning closer to energy transition and and minimizing climate change. You know, in in terms of process-wise, how we're doing that, we're we're starting with the MSCI All Country World Index, so pretty broad universe. There's scoring and screening that's utilized to determine ESG leaders across various market segments. This is going to be our investable universe, and we're going to make stock selection decisions across that investable universe by evaluating companies on a set of fundamentals and ultimately build a portfolio of around 200 to 400 stocks. And that resulting portfolio is gonna have an ESG advantage relative to traditional cap-weighted 
MSCI ACWI index. That's fascinating. Anna, can you give us a little bit of a picture of how the scoring, your scoring, the scoring that you do works? How do, how do you get there? How do you craft it? How does that work? So our primary goal is to be good stock pickers. We're looking at valuation, quality, pricing trends. So looking for companies that have some wind behind their sales. And so, it, but in addition to having all of these good, strong financials, we're also looking for companies that um, have strong ESG. And we do believe that companies that have strong ESG are more likely to be more forward-looking, thinking over a longer horizon over their prospects, and are over a long time more likely to outperform. Right. Okay. That's great. Mike, can I, you know, ultimately, I, I, we can go into some of the details, but we don't, we don't need to go into all of them. But I think we've all heard that the climate bill was passed in the U.S. You know, this is positive, I'm assuming. How, how does this work for the investor listening to this? What, what does it sort of mean? How do you couch that for those looking to invest in this type of way? Yeah, I think it, it increases the investment opportunity. So, you know, if we think about, you know, what that bill addressed a lot in, in renewables, we're at the very early stage of growth in renewable energy. So if we think about solar, wind, hydro, that accounts for less than 10% of the energy that we produce globally. Now, legislatively, we've got growing government support to increase that. So that $375 billion over the next 10 years, you know, it's going to help foster the adoption of clean energy in the form of tax credits for wind and solar manufacturing, carbon capture technology, green hydrogen. So I think, you know, that's, that's a real positive on a larger scale. Shorter term, in that bill, there were tax credits available for consumers who, who purchase used or, or new electric vehicles. So, you know, if we think about that opportunity, less than 1% of people in the U.S. actually drive an electric car. So we know consumer preferences are changing, and alongside government support, these are very positive. And then you've also got continued regulations in terms of, of stricter emissions. So companies that are further along and embracing the shift are going to be stronger and benefit from that financially. And so I, I think this is the catalyst to that. Right. And it's so interesting, as you say, you know, who's further along. I mean, we can probably all conjure up some companies that are going to be further along in this. Anna, take us into the scope three discussion. So I think a lot of people probably have heard of scope one, scope two, how companies have to, you know, have some long-term planning about what their first carbon footprint is and then moving on down the road where they source things from and what they send out to the world. Scope three is going to be tough to accomplish. Where are we on that? So scope three is extremely interesting, extremely important information, and probably some of the toughest information to collect because it's really looking at the emissions from the company's supply chain, but also the emissions from the products that they're producing. So think about an automaker. Frankly, the emissions from their own process, while it's important to control those emissions, they're not nearly as impactful as the emissions from the cars that they're producing. And so if we really want to evaluate a company and the carbon targets that they're setting, for an auto company, we should really focus on the scope three. And we definitely see by many magnitudes the much lower scope three emissions for companies that do more electronic vehicles. And, you know, but a, a building, on the other hand, scope three isn't as important. It's all about scope two, the energy that they're using to, to keep, keep the building running and keep the lights and air conditioning on. It's so interesting how all of that comes through. So just going back to regulatory a little bit, Mike, I wonder if you can just sort of, you know, 
there's more to do. I mean, obviously, there's a lot more to be sketched out. The architecture of it still needs to be built out. But in terms of financial data that that you would need to help with guiding you, um, what's there? Where, where is that going? Is it going quickly enough? Yeah, um, I, I would think just just broadly, more regulations are needed to make the availability of data for us to assess these companies more abundant. But we also want to make them uniform. So it's great that a company maybe is throwing a 100 different metrics out there. But if they're not comparable to peers, it's very tough for us to judge how impactful they're being. So it's more regulation, yes, create a little bit more abundance, but we got to make it usable for the decision makers. In terms of regulation and creating this data, I think I like that we're going in this direction because it sort of supports the fact that sustainability data is going to be as important or on equal footing as financial data. So in Europe, there's this concept of double materiality that's moving along. Explain that if you don't mind. Yeah. Yeah. It's this concept that not only does financial data matter in terms of if a company is a good investment, but also we want to understand how it impacts the world beyond that. So some of the non-financial data. So how does it impact climate change, social impacts? And I think, you know, the argument is growing greater and greater that considering those things is going to have financial implications in the future. So we need to start thinking about those now. And we really want to position towards companies that are moving ahead in that regard because it is going to be material. We might dig into that further in a second. It's such an interesting area to consider. And we're talking largely about public companies companies you can buy shares in and, you know, how this is affecting ultimately a shareholder's sort of perspective, what shareholders want, but also where the regulations fall and what the companies are all doing about it. What about a private company, though, for instance? Absolutely. So private companies, they don't, of course, they don't have as strict a disclosure requirements as public companies. However, to the extent that they want to be part of the supply chain of a public company, they do have to monitor their ESG because, for public companies, they often conduct what we call supply chain audits to assess the ESG of their supply chain. This can be a very difficult analysis to do, but it is. But this, but this analysis is actually part of the overall ESG evaluation of the public company, and so they can be very discerning about which private companies they they choose to include. But also, private companies need to consider their lending and underwriting through insurance needs as well. So, for example, there is European legislation um, in the works now around evaluating the risk, environmental risk of a bank's loan book. And so private companies need to consider that as, as they think about their loan needs. And so the line between public and private isn't quite, a, a, isn't quite that distinct when it comes to evaluating ESG. You can't really escape. I mean, if you're part of a supply chain, it's, yeah. it's somehow that's going to come. It's very, it's very interesting. Mike, because we've seen examples, for instance, of, you know, some companies trying to have their own relationships, for instance, with, you know, more directly with their supply chain. I mean, is that fair? You do see some of that, right? Yeah. And I think it's about trying to shrink the supply chain and having more knowledge of what's actually in the supply chain. So, you know, an example of, of where you might want to be sensitive to that is if we think about battery technology with, with EVs, right? So part of that input into creating that technology is what's called critical battery metal. So cobalt, lithium, copper, nickel. What's interesting about these Rare materials- as they're known, yes. Yeah. And what's, I think, interesting or, or needs to be considered is 
the sourcing of these materials as an input, there can be significant social and environmental risks attached to them. So if we think about cobalt, for instance, a significant portion of cobalt produced in the world today comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo. So there, if, if we're sourcing from there, we need to understand where there's heightened risk around labor standards. You know, what's our exposure there? And do we want to source more sustainably elsewhere? And it's not just about those social things, but also, you know, things that we need to consider, you know, again, with that supply chain is, is what's the water stress? What's the carbon emissions coming from, you know, mining that material? How are we dealing with waste? And those are important considerations for our portfolio. When we're looking at someone that, you know, on the surface is producing something greener, we want to make sure that they're doing it in a sustainable way. And, you know, there's a risk that it could actually have a net negative impact if, if we're not careful about that. So, so supply chain and understanding where things are being sourced into the final product, something we look at, and I think an important overall consideration when investing. Yeah, and Anna, this, this question might tie together with what Mike was just talking about, but the, the idea of allocation of capital, you know, where, where that's going, where, where money's being spent, how a company is developing itself, how that is in line. But it also comes back to sort of who might be lending the money for companies to go ahead and do that. That comes down actually to the financials, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's the the banking industry. You know, it's very interesting because, of course, the banks have their own set of risks as a, as, as, as a business, but they also take on the risks of, of their customers. And so when we do an ESG evaluation of a company, we have to look at who they're lending to to get that full view. And a lot of times, this sort of evaluation can, can be quite difficult. You know, Mike earlier was talking about um, shrinking the supply chain, for example. You know, evaluating a supply chain is not an easy thing to do. For example, imagine a hardware company that's, uh, that needs minerals. Those minerals start in a mine, they go, to, they go to traders, then they go to refiners, and they go to component makers, and through many steps, they end up as a final product. Often for hardware manufacturers, they can only go back in their evaluation to the refiners. How is that going to happen? Like, I mean, do you need investigators on the ground checking that? Like, how, how does that work? So there, there are certifications that companies can get. And so that, that and so monitoring for um, the cert- certification from your suppliers. But also it really is about, you know, each company within the supply chain looking a step back. It's it's one thing for a company to go back many steps, but if they can rely upon their suppliers to go to go back steps and those suppliers to go back steps, because it's, frankly, it's a little bit of a game of telephone. But if, you know, when we, and we're not, unfortunately, not quite there yet, but, but ESG is evolving so quickly. When we get to the point where we have much better disclosures, much richer disclosures, yeah. We will have that confidence that, you're, that, are, that the suppliers are doing the right thing. Frankly, right now, only about 30% of tech technology hardware manufacturers are even reporting detail on their supply chain audit. So we, we frankly right. have a lot of work to do there. So that's interesting. It ties into a question. Just, Mike, I'll put this to you. So to an extent, given the early stage of renewable investing, are you finding a wide universe to invest in? And actually, you told us how many stocks. It was in the neighborhood of 200 at at the top of this conversation. But yeah, just comments on, is it wide enough? Could it be wider? I mean, are you finding enough? 
kind of ties into what Anna was talking about, was trying to figure out all the moving pieces still. Yeah, I mean, the way that we're viewing it is there's probably three or four sectors that, that we're looking at here, right? So utilities, energy, infotech, industrials, that, that can really make an impact in, in the renewable space. They're not necessarily all going to be pure place. There are, for instance, I'll, I'll give you an example of, of a renewable opportunity in our, our portfolio. It's, uh, it's a large global integrated oil and gas company. Now, understood on an absolute level, this is, you know, at the service and environmentally unfriendly sector. However, you know, I could make the argument that our push to slow warming, Paris Accord levels, and the ambitious goal of, of net carbon neutrality can't be done without the help of these companies to help transition to cleaner energy solutions. So what we like or what we're thinking from a re renewable perspective about this company is we want to understand where they are going. So what are they doing from an R&D perspective versus other companies in the space? And in this, in this case, the company we own, they're investing about 50% more in green energy solutions such as wind and solar versus oil and gas projects. As a result of that, a greater proportion of their revenue is being driven by green energy solutions. And that also is better than some of their peers. If we think about another big, large integrated producer that we're comparing to, and there is a lot of disparity in the space, you look at R&D investment from this other company, 90% of it is going to traditional oil and gas. So for us, it's a very clear delineation, but there are a lot of examples in the space which we can differentiate and build a portfolio off of those leaders. That's fascinating. Hannah, can you maybe take this question? Can you expand a bit more on how companies are evaluated from ESG perspective? Are there thresholds or kind of digging into the, are there certain factors, in fact, that you look for? Yep. So we, of course, this is ESG. So we, we look at environmental, social and governance issues. Each plays slightly more or less important role depending on the company. So what's really important when you do an ESG evaluation is what we call materiality looking at metrics that are relevant for this company. So for example, I mentioned earlier, um, real estate. Buildings are the, the biggest consumers of energy in the world. So we put more emphasis on the environmental evaluation. When we look at the technology hardware companies, I also mentioned earlier, they're you know, looking at the supply chain, evaluating uh, human rights issues in the supply chain is more important. And this level of granular data, frankly, it's not that old. It's fairly, it's been over, really over the past few years, we've really started to have good quality granular data like this. Before that, it, it was sort of a more of a one size fits all. And so now that the data's improved, we can do this more detailed analysis. And I think going forward, especially in as we have more regulation and more standardization of data, this this should improve significantly, you know, and, and what we've seen, for example, is the formation of the ISSB, which is a standard setting body, which is really kind of took the big task of going to a lot of different organizations. Frankly, ESG is a little bit of an alphabet soup sometimes. Lots of organizations. Here's an organization that said, here's some general guidelines. Here's SASB, which really set kind of very industry specific metrics, combining all of these organizations to provide one framework, companies and investors to know exactly, here's my business, here's what's relevant, here's what I should be reporting. Mike, it sounds like so much work to make sure that you put this all together properly, but the demand 
is so encouraging. I mean, you, you can look at a younger generation that is demanding that their investment dollars are going to a place that's going to create real change. The demand, can you just speak to that a little bit? I mean, it's it's really quite revolutionary and, and incredibly optimistic. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, over the last five, 10 years, and even more recently, the investor demand in terms of how they generate their returns is increasing and the preferences by which they want to do that, there's a lot more available to them. So, so we're taking sort of a broader-based approach approach in, in creating those preferences, but we know that there are other things available, more thematic-based portfolios, more impact investing, and I think that's all very good for some of the goals that we have in place. I think also from an investment time horizon perspective, I think the scale in which these things are coming to fruition and, and sort of the so the, the thing from an investor's point of, view is, point of view is, hey, green energy, we're moving towards it. Realistically, when can I expect a return from it? And I think, you know, one of the examples that I, I give is if we think about the EU and what they're doing in renewables, they have a goal set to make 30, maybe even 40 percent of their energy being produced by 2030 to, to be green. That's pretty amazing considering the time it takes to get sources of energy up to that scale. If we think of oil, natural gas, coal, when those were first industrialized, it took 50 to 60 years to become that bigger piece of, of the energy solution. So I think all of what's happening in terms of where investors want to go, the engagement we're having with companies and government support, I think that timeline for return on investment is shrinking and it's very exciting from an allocator's viewpoint in terms of wanting to be in this today and what they might actually uh, generate in terms of returns in, in a much shorter condensed timeline. Anna, you've mentioned uh, Europe a couple of times. They, they have gotten going on certain things faster than, than other parts of the world for, for a variety of reasons. Do you think this is an interesting, I mean, to me, it looks like an interesting tipping point because of the question of, of Russian oil and gas making its way to Europe and, and the cutoffs. It, for Europe, it certainly is a tipping point, but is it for the rest of the world? Like, is this sort of really happening? Absolutely. This is a tipping point for the whole world. Yes, we're directly seeing it in Europe and, you know, their concerns this winter about, you know, how will they heat their homes? But because the world is so globalized and supply chains are, are global, what affects one region uh, affects all regions. And a lot, in many ways, for example, the U.S., it takes Europe as a guide. Europe sort of is at the forefront. But then, you know, for example, scope three emissions was something that the SEC had not thought about for a long time. Europe was, was, was much more aware. But now the SEC is starting to look around, uh, look at putting regulations around scope three. So and even in Asia, we're seeing where um, they they have been making huge strides. You know, it was interesting. I was looking at, real, again, you know, real estate companies and many of the most ESG attractive real estate companies were in Japan. And this really? was something that I had not, you know, this was frankly came as a surprise to me um, because, you know, there was there was always this concern about, you know, when, when would Asia catch up? And even emerging market companies, while the governance in their own in their own countries may not be as strong as developed markets. Again, if they want to be suppliers to um, large companies, th these emerging market companies have to have high ESG standards. So we are all one globe and we are all affecting each other. We just add one more thing when we think about impact and, and um, yes, in different countries. 
you know, China is one of the biggest emitters, right, out there. And we've seen strides that that government has been making, right? So they're doing a lot more on the regulatory front. They actually introduced a, a carbon cap and trade system in 2021. They're a signatory of the Paris Agreement. So, you know, I, I think we're starting to see not just Europe and U.S., but really all corners of the globe starting to recognize this and to really make true steps in, in, in trying to be ESG aware and, and to impact um, climate change. And Mike, I might just ask you to, to finish this off. Just take, you mentioned it before, but just sort of take us to the, the kind of broad positioning discussion. You mentioned sectors that, that might have the biggest impact. Utilities was one, energy um, another. What, what else? So I think um, if we think about technology, so semiconductor companies, right, their, their inputs into, you know, solar panels, industrials in terms of making wind energy available. So I think I think it, it's broad. They can be directly manufacturing it, but they can also be part of that supply chain. Uh, what we try to do is, you know, sort of have a broad perspective. And, and Anna mentioned the materiality map, and certainly in some parts of the market, the E is going to be a lot more focused on in terms of whether this fits to our portfolio or not. And in other cases like financial institutions or social media companies, for instance, we maybe tilt more towards uh, emphasizing the social aspect. So how is my privacy being protected as one of the things that we care about a lot more there than versus maybe what greenhouse gases are they producing? Oh, so interesting to have those pieces folded in there. Anna and Mike, I want to thank you both for joining us here in this, you know, fascinating to hear what you're looking at, where the landscape is for this type of investing. It's really been a pleasure to speak to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Emma. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.